I'm here today with Adam Leneves. How are you, Adam? I'm well, thanks, John. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. It's very early in the morning here, but it's not for you because you're all the way over in Australia. Yeah, I'm here in cold Canberra, where it's about five degrees. Oh, oh of course, it's winter, isn't it? Always forget that. We we recorded a podcast a while ago, actually, which listeners of this podcast won't know because it was recorded for work. But we recorded a podcast for our for our works. We work at the same place, and you were going on about things like the feedback sandwich and stuff like that and about how it's it's just not based on any kind of research it's just rubbish and that inspired a kind of a conversation between us so i wanted you to come on this podcast to kind of talk through your approach to learning development research and evidence and stuff like that so do you want to just give us a quick overview of what you want to talk about today yeah thanks so um i mean we talked about this together and i think a lot of people in the lnd community sort of have this niggling feeling that there's a there's a bit of a problem with some of the models that we use and some of the things that we deliver or, or we talk about um, that they're not evidence-based or, or the evidence is hard to find or it's ambiguous or it's not reproducible it's not in the public domain and um, therefore you know if you're a trainer or a facilitator or any sort of L&D professional and you're standing up your, your credibility depends on what you're saying being true and being valid and being verifiable um, and oftentimes, you know, there actually uh, there are plenty of L&D myths out there um, that we reproduce, sometimes unknowingly and sometimes knowingly. So I've been in in, in situations where you know the, the slide deck that I'm I'm working off in a in a uh, delivery situation, you know, has something that I know is, if not wrong, then actually um, quite problematic. And I'm put in a very difficult position where how do you interpret that? How do you kind of present? Uh, something useful to, to the people who are, are sitting in front of you whilst maintaining your professional um, integrity and credibility um, by not giving them, um, can I say, by not, you know, giving them bullshit. Yeah, and I think I've, I, I've been on um, I've been on a couple of training courses recently where they've done things like that. And, and th there's a few things where I've known that they've been talking about learning styles or something like that, or they've been talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs as, as a solid model about of workplace motivation. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is just, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. That kind of knowledge is, is so superficial. And that's only because in those cases, I know more. Then there was like, I don't know, 10, 12 other models that I had never heard of or didn't know very well. So I just kind of thought, oh, this must be true. But the models where I knew, I just kind of thought, oh God, this is paper thin. And it just seemed to be kind of, everyone in the room was kind of, oh wow, these are great tools. These are really useful because it's insight, it's knowledge. And I thought, oh my God, this is crap. Yeah, so my question there is not, is something right or is it wrong? It's actually, how do we know if it's right or wrong? And, and how, how are we able to judge the value and the quality of some, some of the, uh, the things that we're talking about as professionals? And there are two problems there, I think. One is that often um, if you're a trainer or if you're, a, uh, if you're delivering um, content, you may not be a specialist in, in that area. So I'm not a psychologist. I, my background is in educational linguistics. I know a lot about research methodologies. I know a lot about um, uh, adult education. But I don't know a lot about psychology. So, you know, if I'm talking about Maslow, for example, I, it's very difficult for me to know whether or not something is um, right, wrong, or a bit, a bit whiffy, a bit, you know, smells a bit funny. Um, yeah. So that's one thing. The other thing is that it's very hard for me to, to therefore go and find out um, and do some research and, and, and discover whether or not 
you know, if I have a suspicion, that's actually been um, uh, uh, supported or not. And oftentimes that's because the the data or the research or the the thinking that that model or that method or that product has been based on isn't in the public domain. It's not uh, out there able to be critiqued, able to be researched, able to be um, identified uh, as being, uh, you know, or able to be judged by, by peers, actually. So, so in that example there, you were saying about the, the, I mean, maybe we'll go through that in more detail in a minute, actually. I was just thinking what, what might be an interesting way of us kicking this off is if you just quickly give us an example. And the example that you used when we spoke previously was about the feedback sandwich. So do you want to just give us that example first, and then we'll kind of talk through what your thinking process around this is? Yeah, so, I mean, the feedback sandwich is one of those kind of very obvious things that a lot of people do, uh, and we all think it works. And for those who don't know, the feedback sandwich is where you, if you have to give or deliver negative or critical or developmental feedback to um, a job report, for example, uh, how do you do that? What's the best way of doing that? And many, many people, they like to, to deliver um, bad news by wrapping it in good news. So the sandwich, the two pieces of bread are good news, and the um, the uh, curried egg that's in the middle of that sandwich, that's the developmental feedback. So rather than saying, um, oh, got some bad news, uh, here's, here's, uh, let, let's talk about it, you take a more uh, circumspect approach where you try and put somebody at ease, you tell them, you, you give them some praise, you tell them something nice, some, something positive, then you slip in the negative developmental feedback, and then you finish with something positive, and you want to do that so that they're, um, they they leave the conversation, or they leave the room feeling motivated and positive and not, not you know, down in the dumps about the, the, the nasty things that you've said to them. Intuitively, for some of us, that seems like a, a, a useful thing, but um, actually, it's it's it doesn't work. It's not um, very very effective at all. In fact, it's counterproductive. I was going to say. I mean, let's step past your use of curried egg as your example of a sandwich filling. But uh, what would you prefer? Um, say, to what, why? I, I don't know. People tend to just say like the meat in the sandwich. People don't usually go into very specific fillings. But um, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm vegetarian. That's right. Everyone's different. Me, that's Everyone's okay. different. Why doesn't it work? I mean, it sounds logical. You kind of like say, you know, Adam, I really appreciate that you're here today. I really appreciate the hard work that you put in. By the way, the thing that you just did then was was rubbish. And then, but you know, you are a really valued member of the team, and you know, slap on back. You know, you you go get him, champ. That to me sounds all right. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe it works for some people, but um, uh, one of the problems I think, it, and it's a, it's around the relationship that you build um, between. Your, with your colleagues, and this doesn't have to be a, a line manager job report. It could be, you know, between colleagues, or uh, you know, in other situations. But, but it's about the relationship that you build and the trust that you build um, as a as a group or as a team or as a as a binome, as a, as a team of two, and how you sort of address and solve problems together, and and how easy and well uh, you feel able to talk about difficult things in a safe and productive way. So if you if you think as a line manager that you have to praise somebody before you can give them a piece of um, insightful news about their performance, then there's already a problem, right? There's already something that says, actually, I'm a bit worried. I don't really know this person well enough to be sure that that how I deliver a message is going to you know be received in a positive and effective way. So that's one problem, I think. 
Um, another problem is that uh, if if you're delivering negative feedback and you start with praise, every time you present praise, somebody will be sitting there thinking, oh, you know, John's called me in for a meeting one-on-one -on -one, and he's telling me something positive. I must have done something wrong. And they sit there waiting for the waiting for the curry egg, waiting for the meat, waiting for the, the criticism, when actually maybe what it is that you want to do is to, to congratulate them and thank them and, and praise them. So by associating the negative with the positive, you might think you're diminishing the negative or you're, you're um, couching the negative in, in, a, in a friendly way. But actually what you're doing is also the inverse or the opposite. You're telling people that every time they hear positive feedback, they could or should expect something uh, critical as well. And, and that's not really a happy or positive way to, to, to communicate with each other. No, I suppose as well they're going to think that every time I say positive and don't say negative that I just bottled out or saying the negative, I suppose. <laughs> they're just going to be <laughs> sort of um, primed to imagine that situation. I, I always think that it's like, it's essentially, if I'm the manager, it's essentially a way of making me feel better. And the way I make myself feel better is, is, is essentially confusing the message. But I, I, I think yeah. the point that, we're, that, that we want to make here isn't how to give good feedback. That would be a different podcast. and. Um, was in fact the podcast we recorded previously, but um, the point is here is what it's actually based on, and the feedback sandwich. I don't know what that is based on. That's based on just some cumulative wisdom, probably some article or old-fashioned whatever was before blog posts. But it has been sort of knocked down by proper research. Is that right? Well, um, I don't know if there's been um, peer-reviewed scientific research that that argues against it, but there's. There's definitely been a lot of um, uh, articles published, and um, you know, in, in very reputable uh, magazines and um, publications that sort of bring this into question. And the one I'm thinking of is is one by Roger Schwartz, uh, which is in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review, which isn't peer reviewed, but it's still a, a legitimate and um, and uh, appropriately, you know, um, good. I don't know. You know, I challenge that to be honest, Adam. <laughs> I think HVR has become increasingly tabloid fodder, to be honest. I mean, I think it used to be much stronger and was much more academic. And I think it's yeah. become increasingly started to read a lot more like, like you, you know, like those kind of clickbait, sensationalist yeah. Yeah, blog yeah, yeah, posting yeah, yeah. stuff yeah. where, you know, I don't mean they're yeah. devoid of, of value by any means, but often they're not, they're not that level of research stuff. They are just kind of five things you can do to get better at whatever uh, opinion versus counter opinion yeah and yeah, but that's my point right that that you don't know you don't know and i don't know we we have no kind of mechanism for judging the the, the value or the credibility or the, the 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 quality or the truthfulness of something that's published or put out there unless um we un unless there's some sort of mechanism for for helping us to 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 filter and to to measure the good from the bad or to distinguish the good from the bad. Traditionally, and this is where, you know, um, coming back to my previous uh, uh, career, which was in academia and in research, um, you know, research is full of problems and academia is full of problems. But one thing that it has going for it is, is uh, peer review and the expectation that if you come up with an idea, if you, if you come up with a, uh, if you do some research, if you come up with a, a method or a theory or a model or something like that, you put it out there and your peers um, try and shoot it down. They try and put holes in it. And if they can, you have to go back and, and think harder or, or redo your, your, your research or address it in a different way. And if, it's, if it stands up to that critique and that criticism, 
then it has some value and then it has some um, quality and we can be more sure, not certain, but more sure that um, it's it's valid, it's real, it's it's correct. In the L&D community, we don't have that mechanism. We, we don't, or there are very few, there are some journals, that's true, but, but um, most of us don't think about the stuff that we're reading in a critical way and in a positively critical way. So we're not thinking, hmm, you know, um, Morabian uh, and the, uh, the, the, the voice, what is it, the three Vs, you know, uh, uh, how messages are communicated through, through voice, through body language and, and through the, uh, oh, I've forgotten what they are now. What are the three Vs, John, do you remember? Do we know if that's Verbal, true or visual, not? You know. And voice. Well, I mean, yeah. Morabian's, Morabian's another example, of course, that, um, of, I, I, well, actually, I mean, Morabian's an interesting example because as far as I understand it, he genuinely took a, a reasonably scientific approach. And I was, I, I want to question you on this in a second, but, um, Albert Morabian took a reasonably scientific approach. It's just it's then being completely dumbed down and misunderstood and just peddled by people that only have a very superficial understanding of it. So they say stuff like, when you communicate, 55% of what you communicate or whatever the percentage is, is visual. 38% voice, yeah. 7% verbal or whatever the numbers are. And that's not what he said. So it's not necessarily that the research is wrong. It's all about whether or not the the interpretation of it, the, the depth of understanding of many L&D professionals in that case. Yeah, that's right. And I think Moravian um, is a good example because he, Albert Moravian, he... He did this research in the 60s. It, it was quite a small research study that he did. It hasn't been replicated, to my knowledge. Uh, anyway, he did this research in a very, very specific way uh, and context. And as you say, it's been taken out of context. And and poor Albert Morabian has spent the last you know, 20, 30 years trying to tell everybody that the way they're interpreting his work is wrong. And, you know, everybody use, connects his name to that model as well. And, you know, if you do a quick uh, Google search on him or go to his website and things like that, you know, he's very, very clearly saying, this is not what I meant. This is incorrect. Um, it doesn't mean uh, what you say it means. And, in fact, his research was in a much, much more specific and narrow sort of field. And so th th that's an example of somebody who who is critical about research and the work that they do and the insight that they have and has tried to share that more more widely and does want people to improve and and to use that insight or that knowledge well and accurately there's a, a further problem if if you think about the way a lot of L&D models and I won't mention the names but they're all out there are monetized or they're, they're created and developed by companies or people I mean MBTI who, and SDI and insights and agile and Things like 702010, even, you know, 702010, which is a very is popular um, uh, idea where 70% of learning happens on the job, 20% happens through, um, through your peers, learning from others, and 10% happens in formal learning contexts. Th that's actually based on a very, very dodgy uh, research, uh, piece of research that was self-reported from managers in America um, quite a long time ago. Uh, the research isn't in the public domain. I've looked hard for it. I can't find it. And and so it's been reproduced. And, and now people say, oh, 70% of what you learn is is on the job. And that's that's actually a, a very, very um, dangerous um, misunderstanding of of how people learn and um, the ways in which informal and formal learning um, methods and um, um, types of learning interact and the different moments at which people uh, need different types of learning to, to for that for that learning to be effective. 
and so forth. So 70-20-10, you know, is a very problematic model. It's useful. It, it's a conversation starter, maybe. Um, but if we leave it at that and we don't sort of dig deep and think more critically about it, I think we're setting ourselves up for, for big problems. Firstly, because it's not actually going to deliver the way we think it's going to deliver if we apply it. And secondly, uh, we risk losing credibility because um, actually we're not really sure what we're talking about because the data isn't really clear. And yeah, there's no, there's no kind of consensus that that's actually how things work. So can, can we just go back a second because you talked, you contrasted your academic career, which is what you did previously before you moved into learning and development. You contrasted the two things and the way that they're based on different kinds of levels of research where academia has this peer-reviewed process and L&D has Google, see what comes up, use that level often. I suppose that's a bit unfair to paint everybody at that level, but often that's what we do. Do you want to just talk us through how does that peer review process work when it's the softer stuff, like, let's say, how people are motivated or how people communicate effectively? So we're not talking here about string theory or, you know, evolution where there's a scientific sort of black and whiteness about it. We're talking about human behavior. And in fields such as economics, which was, which is what I graduated in, similarly, the, the actual, the level of research is different. It's not like, does this medicine work, yes or no? Or yes, it works under these conditions. There's a lot more kind of theorizing and a lot more kind of assumptions you have to make before you can even get anywhere. There's a lot of understanding that these things aren't ever the full picture. There aren't ever full explanations. So how does this work in the, the, the kind of training where we're doing? We're talking about managing people, leading people, communicating, influencing, those kind of things. Surely it's a different kind of level of peer review anyway, isn't it? Yeah, so I think in the social sciences, in, in academia, and I'm not saying it's perfect. Actually, it's, it's deeply problematic as well, but it, it knows and admits to itself that, that there are problems in the process. And that in itself is, is kind of a mechanism for helping to, um, to defend or helping to ensure that people remain critical and, and think for themselves a bit and, and look for themselves for um, you know, the deeper sort of truth, value or not of, of what's being said. But in a, in a typical uh, social sciences or linguistics, in my case, or economics in yours, um, you know, if, if you do some research, you'll, you'll design some research probably with some colleagues. You'll analyze that research and write an article or publication. You'll send it to a quality uh, publication that has um, a reputation and that will be put out. Your article will be given to two or three or occasionally four um, reviewers and you won't know who they are. And they won't know who you are, and they'll read it, and they'll um, check uh, that what you're saying is coherent, makes sense. Um, they'll check the resources that you, uh, the, the sources that you cite, and the different resources that you use, and then um, they'll suggest changes or comments. And that, that there's a process, and then that will be published. And that that sort of blind peer review is a way of, it's an imperfect way, but it's a way of sort of ensuring that what that people don't make up stuff and that what they say they've found is verifiable and that it fits and it's paid paid it, it pays reference to and it fits into the into the um, the canon of, of work that's already been done in that area so you know you're citing previous people you're demonstrating that you have an understanding of the um, of the previous research that's been done in this area you're building your ideas on the ideas of someone else etc etc so much the same way as, as the hard sciences, I think in these social sciences, 
There's no such thing as being right or wrong or truth, but you're building up a body of evidence towards a, a particular point of view or towards a particular sort of idea that you can say, yep, this, this, I'm pretty confident that this is true, this works, this is right. You're right that for managers, for people who aren't in that um, academic sphere, I think we don't have the luxury of spending months or longer doing research. And we really rely on, on other people and we rely on those yeah, academic and other uh, research, other types of researchers to do that work for us. The problem is that we don't always know or we're not always able to tell which is the good stuff and which isn't the good stuff. Yeah, I, it's interesting you say that actually because the it's not perfect. It's not necessarily a full picture. And I think this is what I was saying before a little bit about Moravian because I think it's sometimes the research is okay. People like John Cotter, for example, his eight-step model for change, the, the model for change that he did is based on research around organizations, around companies, but it's since been monetized and it's driving his career. And it's since become, again, one of those things that L&D professionals quite often pick up off the shelf and go, here's the answer. You know, this is, this is it. And it's sort of presented as a lot more than it is. And I think somewhere along the line, when the research is done, it's perhaps presented in that kind of honest way that you're suggesting where it's, it's never right nor wrong, it's never full answer or whatever. But then as it goes through the process of being published and being put into Harvard Business Review in its article form, and then it gets picked up and, and sent around conferences, and then it gets into everybody's textbooks and gets into everything. Through that process, it becomes harder and harder and harder. Do you know what I mean? It kind of solidifies into yep. something which yep. becomes, this is now the truth. The, it, to some extent, it, it's not just the research, it's the process. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also an attitude. I mean, a, a researcher, and I don't want to, you know, I, I keep going back to this, but I don't want to say researchers are right and, and professional, you know, deliverers are wrong. But a researcher will probably start with the, the view, I'm probably wrong, but this is what it looks like to me. Somebody who's invested years of their work, uh, life, and, you know, has created their career around a model, for example, will come to that with the position, I'm probably right. In fact, I, I want to convince you that I am right so that I can sell my product to you or so that, you know, the, the work that I've done continues along, uh, you know, in, in, in the, uh, the public sphere. That's also true for researchers, of course, who, you know, they, they develop their, their ideas or their methods or their theories and then they defend them. Um, but a good researcher, I think, is always open to the idea of um, uh, challenge and improvement through that process of challenge. So it's a bit like getting the feedback and going back to that point that we made before about giving feedback. You know, they're open to feedback and they're, they're willing to absorb that and and incorporate that into their future iterations of their model. And they're also happy for others to um, take their ideas and test them to demonstrate that actually they are valid and they are um, useful. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. It, it's how you approach that research. If you approach that research thinking, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to be in Harvard Business Review, and I'm going to have a career based on whatever model I come up with, then you are. You're kind of looking for to validate the assumptions that you've made. And you're looking, you're kind of really desperate for that data to actually produce some sort of, uh, you know, results. You're not starting with that position of, yes, I think I, think I might be wrong. But bearing, in, bearing all this in mind, why these things persist, and they persist in L&D, I think, for a number of reasons. One, I think, is that, as you said, L&D people are not experts in all of the subjects that they 
that they cover, I think we don't necessarily have time to go into each and every model and work out just how robust it is. And that, but there's also other things in there, like things like Cotter tends to work quite well as a structure. It tends to work quite well as a way of talking people through change management, for example. Sometimes we say, well, it's just the start of a conversation. Sometimes the learners themselves have these expectations of they don't want something that's kind of deep and theoretical and academic and full of ambiguity. They just want to be given some simple solutions, which whether or not they're the full answer, they're at least steps forward. Yeah, but as professionals, um, wouldn't as a professional, wouldn't you want to know why something works? And I'm not saying that they don't work. There are some people out there who just poo-poo anything that, that hasn't been factually verified, you know, stamp of stamp of approval. And I, I'm not one of those people. I think that, you know, very often things work but we don't really know why, or we don't quite understand why. And many, many of the models, they're useful to us because there's something in them that, that is meaningful, that does work, that, that, that has value to others. The question for us is, as professionals, you know, how do we identify what that is and how do we separate that from perhaps things that, that are, aren't useful or are counterproductive to, to um, those ideas or to, to enabling the thing that is working to 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 be um, made even better. So unless we understand the problem and unless we understand what's right about a model, we really can't um, develop it or deliver it in a, in an impactful, meaningful way. The way you know to its potential. Right. Okay. And that's a really good point because when it it is a really good point, but it's also you know having that depth of knowledge about a model gives you a lot more confidence. You can explain it better. You can answer questions about it better. You can help people apply it. But I think it's an interesting point because it's about what is the role of the L&D professional. And a lot of the times we seem to be going away from content and say that there's all content out there anyway. You know, we might do a bit of curation, but we'll be much, we'll be more focused on what is the process of learning. We'll be sort of professionals in how people learn, not necessarily what people learn. Yeah, that's right. But curation's another good example where People think people assume that curation is actually quite an easy thing to do. You sort of do a Google search or you use one of these aggregator um, engines, and you bring together a, a set of things on a topic, and then maybe you sort of do a check or something on them. Um, that's okay, but you know, how do you apply sort of some sort of quality filter to that? How do you know which of those things is actually really useful, which of those things is wrong, uh, which of those things has potential? which have been refuted by somebody else, which are contentious. That involves a level of insight, I think, that, that comes from a professional. And that's why I think L&D is a profession. It's, or or this, the work that we do, is it's, it's a profession because it involves in-depth understanding and knowledge and a set of skills that you don't simply get from hanging out in a cafe with you know, a bunch of people. So, so are you advocating that instead of just being professionals in how people learn, we need to also be professionals in content, as in specialised, is what I'm trying to say. So, for example, would we be learning and development consultants or whatever, brackets, management development? Because we cannot have that depth of knowledge about all of this, the breadth of subjects that we're talking about here. It's just not possible. I think, I mean, that depends on the individual and, and the, the organisation that they're working with or for. No but, what, no, but I mean, are you advocating that as a consequence of what you're saying? A any of us who see ourselves as professionals, who, who have a sense of passion about what we do and, and, and deep desire to understand what we're talking about as deeply as possible, then we already are professionals and we probably already are 
self-selecting in those areas that we want to specialize in. So I might have, you know, your, your, your big thing is management. My thing is maybe um, culture and communication, intercultural communication and languages. And those are different areas. That doesn't mean I can't sort of talk to issues around management. But I, I if somebody came to me and said, we want a bespoke session designed to really help managers understand um, the ways in which they can lead teams to to um, improve the capability of the, the staff members of the teams or whatever. Um, I would definitely recommend you and not me for that role because I know that the depth of your knowledge and experience is much, much greater than mine. So I think we do it. And, you know, there's, there's limited value. If you want to get away from sort of this bread and butter, generic um, one-day training course, wasn't that fun, let's all go back to our desks now and forget it. If and most of us agree, I think that that's a problem, and I don't mean to belittle it, but but the, the value, the the organisational value, is questionable. And actually, we don't know how to measure its its impact or its value. Well, we're not good at measuring its impact and its value. But if we want to get away from that, or if we want to try something different, and we want to be more insightful and and think more deeply, then we have to make choices about the the scope with which we can engage with our clients or our customers or our colleagues. The more I think about this the more I see that it's it's not possible to be that kind of L&D general practitioner. It's, we need to be specialists in, in themes, in whatever that might be, whether it's leadership or, or, or management or communication, whatever that might be. It doesn't mean we can't do other stuff, uh, but, but our kind of core of our career needs to be kind of more focused. And perhaps L&D professional is the wrong level to be, to be talking about professionals. But I don't know. I need to think about that. I think it, a good analogy, I think, is medicine. And so you have uh, lots of different specializations in medicine, including general practitioners. And GPs actually are specialists. They're specialists in people, in a way. Uh, and their, their job is not to know everything about everything. Their job is to um, recognize things or patterns or issues or, or um, illnesses or, or things. That, their job is to identify something that might be wrong with a patient and then send them to the right specialist. So their job is to, to really help diagnose problems and then send them to the, the expert or the specialist who's fit for solving that problem. As L&D professionals or, or as advisors or consultants, um, we do much the same thing, I think. Um, but we need to have a, a toolkit, a really a robust toolkit that sends people to um, the right type of specialist for the right need. So we need to be very good at diagnosing. And if that's not an actual person, that might be a tool or a, a piece of learning or a model or something that, that you know you can procure. But in order to procure it and, and to, to know that it's going to be the right thing to help that person or to help that organization, you need to have um, trust and confidence um, in the accuracy of, the, of that tool or in the, the validity of that tool. Uh, you know, if you want to if people want to develop their, their teams, for example, you might want to recommend SDI or MBTI or one of those other um, things. But if you really think about it, you might want to do some research and find out which of those is the best, which has the best track record, which is most respected in the, uh, um, uh, and, and which, which actually has, has some evidence behind it. Because anybody can, can come up with some model of teamwork. You know, you and I can do it and let's go. And if it looks nice and snazzy and we get the right PowerPoint deck, then um, off we go. Let's let's uh, create a, a product, but it could be bullshit. Well, I'm gonna, I'm just going to speak up for a second for SDI, and and I'm biased because uh, they've been on this podcast talking about SDI. 
I actually do think that's reasonably sort of open in terms of looking at its research. I mean, it's proprietary in terms of use of its tools, but in terms of its research, it's reasonably open and I think uh, quite quite a powerful and useful tool. But but listen, I want to I want to kind of bring this to a close because I know that you had four key points that kind of summarised what you wanted to say or what you think are the implications for our industry. So can I just ask you to, well, let's talk about those. Yeah, okay, thanks. So I think, I mean, we've sort of covered them in, in our conversation as well, but at, the first one is that at the heart of, of what we do as trainers or advisors or consultants and other, D, uh, other L&D things, um, it's that need to have a deep understanding of what we're talking about and to always be um, questioning and um, researching and developing our knowledge and insight further. So to go back to the example of, the, of medical practitioners, you know, they, they spend a, a good chunk of their week reading research, reading the latest, you know, research in, in advances in medicine or, or diagnosis or treatment or whatever it is, so that they're on top of their game, or the good ones do anyway, so that they're on top of their game, so that actually um, their skills are constantly updated. And it's really important for us, I think, as professionals, not only to be serving our clients, but to be investing in ourselves so that um, what we offer to our clients is of the highest quality. That's one thing. Um, the second okay. I think is that, that you know, as, as professionals, we should also be researchers or we should also, and, and we do, we also look for insight. We look for understanding, we apply models, and then we get feedback on those models. And so we are researchers, and I think it's very useful, and it would be wonderful to have a broader mechanism for sharing what we do and for developing a sort of open source research project where you and I and others can sort of compare what we do. Um, and maybe we do that informally, I guess, and develop and analyze and assess and um, um, improve our practice through insight and through challenging each other in a convivial way. Um, the third, I think, is that you know critique is a really positive and valuable thing, and we shouldn't see it as being a negative criticism, but as a positive challenge to help us improve. That's often what we tell our clients and customers, particularly around you know development. Um, but sometimes uh, we're less good at applying our advice. Yeah, and not the truth. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like a mechanic who drives a piece of crappy old car, you know. Uh, and the fourth yeah. is uh, that we, you know, when, when people ask us for simple, simplistic or trendy or fashionable solutions, off-the-shelf solutions, I think we should push back and we should dig deeper and not agree to peddle something that we have a problem with or that we think is problematic or overly simplistic because ultimately we're not offering good value for money for the for the client or for the customer. If, if we give them a, you know, one-day course in whatever management essentials and we know that some of the models and some of the stuff that we talk about and that is kind of a bit not that good and in, at the end of the day that people aren't really going to take away a lot then why are we why are we re recommending it is it because we have some sales targets to meet or something mm, maybe but in that case you know I, I think we're in a different job we're, we're in a sales job not in a in L&D job yeah, but I, I, that's a really interesting one, that last one, because I think we're, we're often under pressure to provide answers because someone will come to us and say, you know, this is my situation. What's the solution? And if we don't kind of have some quick 
answer straight off the top of our heads, then we sort of almost feel like we're failing. And quite often the, the customer might feel like we're failing. What they don't necessarily want then is some kind of sort of complicated, incomplete, ambiguous advice or whatever, which means that they've actually got to do quite a lot of work. There's this expectation that we're going to go in there and solve their problem. And I, and I do think the way to push back against that isn't to overcomplicate it. I think the way to push back against that is to just pause, step back, kind of release yourself of the pressure of coming up with a brilliant answer and actually just take some time to talk through the problem and analyse it. And I think that an analysis phase is something that we quite often skip over. And that in itself will help you kind of think through what you possibly can say to help them. Yeah, I think, I mean... For me, the ideal in, in what I do, and most of what I do now is around designing digital um, learning experiences, but the, the ideal for me is to come up with the simplest answer to a problem. But in order to do that, there's quite a lot of thinking that has to go on and, and, and talking as well and listening. And to find the simplest answer to a problem, you, you often have to reflect quite deeply and, and do some research, do some insight, understand the problem before before that solution sort of presents itself. And so often, often if we're not quite sure of the problem, or we haven't done the, the insight bit of the, uh, the, the, the the analysis, the learning needs analysis or whatever, we offer an off-the-shelf problem that doesn't, uh, an off-the-shelf solution that doesn't really fully address the need, and therefore there's a there's a gap, or there's a, a, an expectation um, that's not met, or uh, you know the 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 recipients of of the, the the learning or the program that we've designed are disappointed because. They haven't got what they thought they were getting, or it hasn't met, you know, their expectations, and and that's a problem for us. I think, you know, it's much better to spend a bit more time to think about what's right and and what what will work, than than rush in with a quick solution, and in a couple of months' time realize that that wasn't the thing that that was useful or necessary. So I'm just I'm just going to summarize your four points because I think they're really good. And I think it's something that in terms of professionalizing this industry of learning development, which is something that I'm really, really interested in. I think these are four really good guidance uh, points for us. And the first thing you said was about the heart of our role is we have to have a deep understanding of the complex issues and the research and the, the, the stuff that's out there um, and not just be good at the process of learning. We have to we do have to kind of have some some grasp of content. Um, an understanding of the models and all the all that kind of popular stuff. Then you talked about we need to be quite open with our own work and make sure that our research is open to independent critique, that we show our working, that we show our you know the data and whatever. And leading on from that, I guess, is this bit about understanding that critique is positive and constructive, and we should be out there trying to trying to get our work knocked down in order to go through that kind of scientific process. And then the last thing was around not jumping to quick and simplistic solutions, having the kind of having the guts to sort of to do that analysis, do that research, really come away and really think about what the exact right answer is and not just kind of want to come up with something quick and what ends up being fairly trite. That's my word at the end, trite. You didn't say that. I'm happy to say trite. Um, and my goal on this is I don't want to sound idealistic and I don't want to um, to... to make people think that that's an easy or an even achievable thing. But I think they're sort of principles that I want to work to in my own practice and things that, that matter to me. And um, that's, for me, a pathway to professional development so that I'm able to better understand what it is that I do, um, the people I work with, their needs, and uh, how I can partner with them to, to 
to achieve outcomes for them that are beneficial. I think that's really interesting. And um, thank you very much for your time today, Adam, and for your thoughts on this subject, because it's from your academic background, it's actually quite useful to hear about the contrast between that and our what's really quite a commercial L&D world and driven by a lot of business things rather than a lot of academic. Idealistically, I suppose, academia is driven by wanting to be right and have right answers, whereas the business world is much more driven by pace and just, you know, good enough, pragmatic, um, and as you say, often monetizing stuff. I, I think academic world has, be, has become a business as well. So I Yeah, I know. That's, a, that's kind of thing, idealized. Values, in, yeah, in, in that kind of idealized thing. But we have to kind of, we have to find the balance between the two. We have to respect the fact that businesses have pace and sometimes good enough is good enough. And um, of course, things need to be monetized. But at the same time, we do need to try to make sure that some the best of academia is in there somewhere without slowing stuff down too much. Yeah, that's the challenge and that's the exciting um, thing about our, our industry, I think. But I think this is an interesting conversation, which I hope is for a lot of people listening to this has kind of at least put that in the forefront of their mind. I don't think we've answered all the questions around that. And as you say, that, that would probably be a bit too idealistic. But, but thanks very much, Adam. I think that's a really interesting approach and you've certainly given me a lot of ideas. And so thanks for your time this morning for me, afternoon for you. And I'm now going to rush off and have my breakfast because I haven't had my breakfast yet, Adam. I'm starving. <laughs> it's almost beer o'clock here. So thank you very much, John, and I'll uh, look forward to uh, catching up with you soon. Great. Thanks, Adam. Thanks.